worship team uh, for leading us in songs that encouraged us. Uh, that in <laughs> the truths in uh, the Word of God, uh, and uh, that uh, just makes our worship that much more, uh, it draws us more to a greater passion because we're singing that which we know and are by faith is true of the Lord, and we want to worship Him in spirit and truth, so I just appreciate that. If you have your Bibles, please take them now. Turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes this morning. Uh, so again, just good morning to all of you. I get to look around the congregation to see who's here this morning. A little bit, uh, uh, just to get to see some of you back. Maybe I haven't seen you in a while. This is my uh, third week back at uh, church after my sabbatical, so it's good. I haven't really got a chance to greet all of you, uh, but uh, it is good to see. Just when I look out here, I say, "Oh, this kind of neat to see uh, those uh, familiar faces." And again, we just welcome our guests this morning too. Glad to have you here. All right. The book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 2, verse 1 to 11, is where we look at uh, this morning for our reading. Ecclesiastes 2. And in this, these last week, this week, and next week, I'm just basically sharing some thoughts and of truths that came to my mind that the Lord just reminded me about as uh, during my sabbatical. So I hope I could share those with you. Uh, after that third week, we're going to go back into the book of Isaiah. So uh, if you have time in your devotional reading or just a f- free time, uh, read through the book of Isaiah again. I know I've been trying to do that just to kind of catch up. Oh, <laughs> to you remember where we were. Uh, we're going to look at I, um, the latter part of Isaiah, the last nine chapters of Isaiah in a few weeks. All right, Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I'm going to preach from 10 to 11 this morning, but I want to read all of uh, 1 through 11 to give us the full context. Ecclesiastes 2, 1 through 11. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself. And behold, it too was futility. I said of laughter, it is madness and of pleasure. What does it accomplish? I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely. And how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven. The, the years, the few years of their lives. I enlarged my works, I built houses for myself, I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself, and I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and I had home-born slaves. And I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces, I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me, preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. For my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted. And behold, all was vanity and striving after wind. There was no profit under the sun. Let's pray. Father, 
As we come to your word once again, pray that your spirit would give us wisdom. Help us to see life for what it really is. Open our eyes, Lord, to the truths. Teach us, Lord, how you want us to see and understand this life that we live on earth for the few days that we have, that, that have been given to us from you. We pray that we would gain wisdom to live these days for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> what would you do if you were given the next three months, you know, off? You know, you'll continue getting your salary, so you have money to live, whatever your job is. So you don't do your job, but you have the next three months off to just do whatever you do. Uh, maybe for some of you who are students, you get the, new three next, th- the next three months off, kind of like summer vacation. But uh, how would you spend your time? What would you do with three months to do whatever you want? Would you travel? I imagine some of us would. Uh, maybe would you take some class to learn something that you've always wanted to learn? Would you work on one of your favorite hobbies, you maybe collecting things, or uh, you might want to just go watch, catch all the Giants games wherever they're playing, or the, travel to uh, maybe to uh, watch all the, your favorite uh, musicals around the world. I don't know. Whatever your hobby is. Would you work on a, a project that you've been wanting to start, but you haven't had the time? Would you spend it with certain people and say, well, I've really wanted to catch up with XYZ people, and I want to spend it with them or, or your family or friends. I think however you, you decide that, most likely what would guide you is what would give you joy, what would give you pleasure, that which would make you happy to do. I felt, I, well, there's a few of us who would do those things which make us unhappy, but the, the, generally most of us would say, well, I'm going to go enjoy these three months because I don't get that to do just whatever I want to do. Well, I had that, of course, I had that opportunity to experience uh, three months completely uh, to do whatever I wished during my sabbatical. And, uh, and as you know, I, in addition to spending more time with my family, I decided to do a home project. I wanted to, to work on my home. I, it's so hard. You have, when you're a homeowner, you, you're, you're working to pay off your home, but, and so you don't have time to work on your home. And you've got to wait till you retire to work on your home. But then by that time, you realize, oh, it's all vain. It's going to burn up anyway, so why bother? <laughs> So I had some time to work on my home. I thought, oh, it would be nice. At a young stage in life, we still want to live in our home for many, many more years. So let me do something. So a kitchen remodel was on my mind. Now, not a complete uh, kitchen teardown remodel, uh, but more of a refresh, I call it. And I basically spent most of my time, well, not all my, but when we're working on the project, just basically repainting my kitchen cabinets. Now, that sounds easy if you've never done it, Okay. If you never know, but painting kitchen cabinets, you know, it's probably just a better use of your time just to buy new kitchen cabinets. <laughs> serious. But, you know, if you have time and don't have the money, then you repaint your kitchen cabinets. Now, have you done this? If you have, anybody ever done this? Oh, yes, yeah. Those are sad people here. Like, oh, yeah, I know what they exactly. No, there you guys, if you're a handy person, you, you probably enjoy it. But anyways. You know that when at first this easy, seemingly easy task really just becomes much more involved than you realize. So basically after removing the doors of the kitchen cabinet, you got to remove the doors. If you can remove the cabinets, that would be even better. But I removed the doors. After removing doors, washing the doors, washing cabinets, sanding the cabinets, repairing the cabinets, wiping down the cabinets, priming the cabinets, sanding, painting, sanding, painting again, and then reinstalling the doors, we had some decent-looking kitchen cabinets. 
And uh, no photo because it's, it's not that great. Uh, but it's, I was an amateur, but I can do it better the second time, but I'm not going to do it the second time. <laughs> Along the way, you know, of course, one project, kitchen counter project, you know, there's just other things that are attached to the kitchen. You just start putting your hands upon trying to do. And it was just fun. So you just end up doing a lot of other projects, replacing countertops, changing light fixtures, installing new cabinet, a new cabinet, uh, replacing a microwave hood, painting the ceiling and walls, and uh, replacing the faucet and things like that. So, you know, and by the time... We were done. We had a pretty newish uh, kitchen, refinished kitchen. So that was kind of fun. I really did enjoy doing that. Not only was I satisfied and pleased with the, the finished work and saying, yeah, that looks good, much better than the, the old, you know, uh, you, know those, you, you, got, you have some of your homes, those oak cabinets, you know, but they're not treated really well, so they're like water-stained, water-logged, so they're all warped and stuff. But it just looks nice now. It's nice. We went with the uh, all-white look, so uh, that's kind of fun. But... The thing I didn't expect while doing it was that I actually enjoyed doing it, the actual work itself. I enjoyed sanding <laughs> as much as that was painful by hand. But once I had the, the orbital sander, it's like, oh, this is nice. This is, you know, the sanding. I enjoyed, you know, uh, fixing. Uh, there was a lot of cabinets. Some of our hinges were broken. Just kind of fixing and filling in with wood, uh, wood replacing, just kind of sanding that down. I enjoyed sometimes re- replacing it with different hinges and whatnot. Uh, just cutting things to add on. Had to replace some trim. So I put, you know, that was fun. Just doing all those kinds of things. The process was actually fun as well as the finished project. And I was thinking, you know, I was kind of just thinking, oh, this is what Jesus might have felt like working on his wood. He's a carpenter, right? So he must, have been, he must have really enjoyed his work too. There's a delight in this work that, we got, that God gives us. Well, my work with kitchen cabinets, and that's, I'm not here to talk about that, but it caused me to think about the work that each of us find ourselves doing in life. You know, all of us have work. You have work you go to. Whether it's your, if you're a student, then your work is school. If you're a mother, your work is your home and your children. If you're a, uh, anybody else who just goes off to work uh, 40 hours a week or plus, your work is that which you're, you're 9 to 5. Some of us are doing whatever we studied in college. Some of us are not. Some of us are still in college, of course. But, this, but I hope that um, what you're doing is something you enjoy. But the reality is, right, I, I've had you know, a bunch of different jobs th- throughout my younger life. And some of them you like and some of them you hate, right? Maybe uh, I don't want to re- ask you to raise your hands. We'll see you. Ask, uh, how many of you hate your job? Yeah, but there'd be a good number of you. Probably like, I hate it. I don't like it. And then hopefully the majority will say, yeah, I like it. Or some of you will just say, uh, yeah, it's a job. All of us will spend our time and life doing some kind of work. In fact, we'll spend the majority of our life doing some kind of work. Most Christians go about their work with little or no thought about what God wills. Even though we're Christians, we know that God wants us to do something. But yet, on a daily basis, on the average, we just don't think about what God wants us to do in our work. And if you think of your work as simply a means to a paycheck, then God's word has much to say about our work, your work and labors, because you're basically spending your time not for God, even though you're spending the majority of your life in work. He wants all of our lives, not just our, our hour, couple hours at Fridays or Sundays at church among God's people. He wants every aspect of it, including the time we have at work. 
this morning, I want us to consider the lessons that God wants us to learn about work and labors, uh, what he wants us to learn about work, but he also wants, he wants us to learn that which we learn through work. These lessons that I'm going to share with you this morning are, are not exhaustive. There are many other lessons we could draw, point out, but they're lessons that I've uh, kind of taken from my time as a carpenter. If you will, these are, uh, these are lessons from carpentry. And uh, this morning, we're going to take a look at four truths that God teaches us about all our, all our labors. Primarily here from the book of Ecclesiastes. And we're going to look at these two passages in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 10, 11, chapter 3, verses 9 through 15. Uh, in this book, this uh, book of poetry, King Solomon, the wisest man of, who has ever lived apart from Jesus Christ, instructs the people of God about everything in this life. How everything is vanity. Everything is meaningless. Everything under the sun, as he likes to term, is vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And it's vanity apart from God. So let's take a look at these four truths about God that teaches us about all our labors. And pray that, I'm praying that uh, it would shape your thoughts about how you go about your work and how you go about your labors for the Lord. All right. So, <coughs> excuse me. The first truth we learn is the reward for all our labors. Is there a reward? Is there some, something that we get out of all our labors that we do of our years under the earth besides a paycheck? In chapter 2, verse 1 to 9, Solomon sought to find the meaning of life uh, by experiencing pleasures. He basically indulged himself in anything that, he did, that would make him happy, that, would make him, that he would feel complete. As a king, he was not limited in his resources, so he had all the money in the world to do whatever he wished. If you had all the money in the world and you devoted all your time to, to seek after the, all the potential pleasures in this world, you would basically do what Solomon does. He sought all of it. He sought out the bodily pleasures, whether it's food or drink or, or relations. He completed, he sought out the, the pleasures of, of accomplishing things, of doing works. He, we read about the various building projects, the gardens and the, the homes and the buildings that he, would, that he built. He collected great treasures, silver and gold. And you can just imagine, you know, having, if you collecting all those things, some of you are collectors, going, having an infinite amount of money to collect whatever you want in that collection. He sought out the best music. Some of you love music. Imagine you say, I'm going to spend the next three months going to listen to all my favorite artists live in concert. That'd be pretty cool. Well, I forget, I'm going to have them come to my house and play at my house live. And so he sought everything and anything under the sun that would bring him pleasure. And we pick up what he concludes at the end of verse 10. He writes in verse 10 this, all my, that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. See, all that Solomon uh, set his heart out to accomplish, to please, to find pleasure, he did. And what Solomon found was that the reward for his labor was the pleasure of doing it. That the pleasure that he found from seeking after pleasure, that that alone was its reward. And this lesson Solomon would reiterate throughout this book, that we're to find joy in what we do, that the joy of what we do is, is, is the reward. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 22, uh, Solomon writes, I have seen that nothing is better than that man should be happy in his activities, for that is his lot. For who will bring him to see what will occur after him? 
And then we read in Ephesians, uh, not Ephesians, Ecclesiastes 5, 18 and 19, he writes, Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him. For this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This this is the gift of God. You see, God's gift to mankind, not only is his son, but God's gift to all mankind is part of his what we call common grace. Whether they worship him or not is the joy that one finds in one's labor. For many of us, our, our labors are toilsome. The curse of sin affects our work and our relationships at work, so sometimes it just drives us mad and we, don't, we dread going to work. But God enables us, if we would work hard or, do, or diligently apply ourselves to our labor, rewards us with joy in that job. A job well done is a, a job to rejoice in. You, if you, some of you know what I'm talking about. You, you just enjoy, no matter what it is, you, you, some of you work on spreadsheets, some of you write, write programs. When you do a good job at work, it's something that brings you joy. So I'm happy about that. Oh, that feels so good. You know, and it doesn't matter what your job is. It can be a simple, a basic entry-level job. I was at Costco last week, and... Um, and as I was checking out, one of the supervisors, my cashier was helping me. Uh, one of the supervisors came over to, to speak to the cashier. And he said, you know, and it was like, a lot of, you know, they're kind of, you know how uh, Costco cashiers are always kind of bantering about with one another. You're, you know, like, hey, hey, check it out. You know, just, you know, get, but they're just always bantering, kind of chatting with each other. And so the supervisor said, it, said to the checker, he said, hey, man, I hear you. I hear you. You, make, you uh, check out. I don't know exact word now. You check out or process your cashier 10% more than all these other cashiers during the same amount of time. And, you know, uh, and uh, so, like, well, that's pretty good. You know, 10% more. He's this very effective, efficient guy. He's got to working hard. And, you know, the guy, all of a sudden, he starts beaming, right? So, yeah, man, I'm the Stephen Curry here, you know, of the checkers. You know? I'm like, oh, yeah, he is. I mean, he, he's really, and, well, actually, he included his partner in crime, uh, the next guy over. But it was just, I could tell this guy had a pride about his work. He's checking people out, just scanning. I mean, you could say, oh, this is boring, you know, but here he took pride in what he did. And when, you know, of course, it helps when your boss comes and just praises him in a public way like that. It was a really smart boss, I was thinking. Uh, but uh, there can be a real pride in joy in one's work. That's God's reward for that man, uh, that cashier. And for myself, this past uh, sabbatical, uh, my reward was the joy in my kitchen cabinets. <laughs> it was satisfying to, you know, just to sand down those rough places. Painting it. It was satisfying to just paint over with a nice coat of new paint. It was a joy to repair broken hinges. It was a joy to straighten all those crooked doors. It was just a job well done. It was a job to rejoice in, no matter what your job is. That's the reward that God gives us for our labors. Now, in addition to the job well done, uh, as we read in chapter 5, verse 19, Solomon also implies that our, our labor gives us joy because it's just that it provides for us. It allows us to eat, you know. If you don't have a job, you don't have no money, you, you're not going to be able to eat. And so there's a provision of it. That's, that's also a reason to joy, to eat and drink and enjoy oneself and all one's labors. That, that when you work hard, you have money to basically buy food and drink to enjoy yourself. To find, hopefully you find pleasure in eating. 
that's part of the reward for all our labors as well. And hopefully you're experiencing some kind of reward for all your labors. At least, at least, the very least, you find joy in getting that check and then uh, that provides for you and, and enables you to, uh, to feed yourself, feed your family. But if not, then I hope you're, you would start thinking, I mean, can I find a reason to rejoice in work? God's given me labor, and the reward of this labor on this earth is that there would be a joy in it, that there would be some pleasure in it. I always wonder, you know, did... Uh, uh, in, in the Bible times, you, you kind of think about people like Joseph or maybe Daniel and his friends who were slaves, but yet did they find joy in their work? I know we know they applied themselves very diligently to the work, and God brought, gave them great success. But I imagine that they found joy, and they looked for the joy of doing a job well done in what they did. And there's kind of men like that, men and women like that, give us examples for us to follow. That's the reward for all our labors, the joy, the pleasure itself of doing a job well done. In chapter 2, verse 11, as we look to the verse 11, we learn a second more sobering lesson about all our labors, and that is the vanity of all our labors. Solomon says, Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted. And behold, all was vanity and striving after wind. There was no profit under the sun. As you all know, this is the theme of Ecclesiastes. Everything under the sun is vanity. It's all meaningless. It's all empty. And you kind of wonder, if just, having just read verse 10, is Solomon having a conflict, uh, conflicting kind of, uh, is conflicting himself? One moment he says that uh, one's labor provides joy, and the next he says that one's labors are meaningless. Well, to understand the apparent conflict, we need to go back to chapter 1. If you go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2 to 4, we read uh, Solomon's theme. He says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his work, which he does under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. This word vanity, if you've studied before, means a, literally means a vapor, a breath. Just in that moment, last second that you breathe, it's here and it's gone. It's a momentary thing. It quickly passes. The word came, of course, to be used figuratively of that which is meaningless, that which is vain. In verse 3, Solomon asks rhetorically, of chapter 1, verse 3, what he, of what he actually states in chapter 2, verse 11. That what advantage, literally that's the same word as what profit does man have in all his work under the sun? And what he Asked rhetorically is what he states, asserts positively in verse 11 of chapter 2, that there is none, there is no profit, no advantage under the sun for all of our labors. Then in chapter, in verse 4, chapter 1, he hints at why. Because we are here for a little while and then we're gone. Generations come, generations go. And that's, it's just not just you that just come and go, but Whole generations of people have come and gone, and the idea is that they're all forgotten. See, all our labors are vanity because we die. And that's, that's, this, that's why Solomon says that the vanity of all labors, because it's all vain, it's all meaningless, because we're all going to die. And when you're going to die, what does it matter to you, all that you've done in life, what does that help you? Because you're about to die and go into eternity. 
Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 16, Solomon says, For there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool, inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten, and how the wise man and the fool alike die. You know, I, I don't like going to funerals, but there's a part of me that likes going to funerals. Because when I go to funerals, it is God's instrument to remind me that this is my destiny too, the grave, that we all die. We're all like little grasshoppers. We're all jumping up and down, trying to get higher than the other. We all kind of seek after, uh, seek after the things that bring, bring us joy or pride or privilege or, or, or gain. And no matter who we are, whether wise, whether fool, whether rich, whether poor, whether strong, whether weak, no matter what nation we were born in, what language we speak, no matter what, what we do in our life, we all die. Death is the destiny of all men. That's why it makes everything we do under the sun meaningless. There's no lasting profit to the things that we do because all will be forgotten. Nothing will last. What's more, you can't even guarantee the fruit of your labors. They can't guarantee that they're going to remain. We hope that sometimes the things we build, the things we do with our work would remain for a while. But for all of us, eventually the fruit of our labors will perish. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 18 19 talks about, uh, uh, Solomon addresses this a little bit. He says, Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor, for which I had labored under the sun. For I must leave it to the man who will come after me. <laughs> That's, you know, Solomon's saying, you know, I, I hate all my, the things that, I'm, that I've gained because I have to give it to my sons and daughters. Uh, no, parents, that's not something you say to your kids, okay? But uh, that's what he says. He says, I got to leave it to someone else. In verse 19, on who knows whether he'll be a wise man or a fool, yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. He realizes that, you know, he's got to give it to someone else and it's no longer in his control. He can't take what he's gained in his life with him. He has to leave it to his descendants. And when that happens, he has no, no control anymore of what happens to those possessions. Because his descendants may be wise, but his descendants may be fools. And they may, but whatever, whoever they are, they're no longer in his control. They no longer do him, Solomon, any good. See, no matter who you are, you can't take anything with you when you die. Ecclesiastes 5, uh, 15 to 16 is a place where we can see this. Solomon writes, as he had come naked from his mother's womb, so will he return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. This also is a grievous evil, exactly as a man is born, thus will he die. So what is the advantage of him who toils for the wind? You see, you can't take anything with you. It all, it's what, just as na- naked as we came into this world, naked we will leave. See, all that our hands work upon, all that we put our labors into, no matter how rewarding, no matter how pleasurable it might bring to us at the moment, in that time, will do us no good when we die. It will do nothing for us. No amount of money, no amount of travel, no amount of friends and family will do us any good 
when we're at that facing that moment of death. Nothing will prevent you from dying. For nothing will last for, and nothing will last forever. Whatever you do, it will not last. Whatever you produce, whether you build something, it will fall apart. Whether you write something, it will be forgotten. Whether you uh, work on spreadsheets, it will be uh, edited to replace by somebody something else. Maybe you develop software, it will go go old and be replaced by another software. Whether you heal people, who eventually die. Whether you write policies, that will eventually be replaced. Whether you buy and sell properties or buy and sell other goods that will all perish. Nothing we work on in this life will last. It is all a vapor and breath. And all, in light of this inevitable death, Solomon says that all our labors, all of it, are vanity. See, the best that one who doesn't know God can do then, in light of this, is to simply find joy in our labors. That's, the, that's point number one. But when we consider eternity, all the joys even that we find in our labors, it's all vanity. It's all meaningless. And you kind of know people who, because they don't know God, they just simply do live their life for the pleasures. The pleasures of the joy of doing what they do. And they strive to do their best. They strive to leave a legacy uh, for themselves. They think that the, the praise of men is something that would be great and wonderful, that they gain a lot of treasures, and they, will, and they get joy out of that in this world. But upon death, they will realize that none of that matters. Live, many people live with no regard for the eternity that waits for them in a very short while. But here's where you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, are different. Here's where you, I have to trust, know the difference. Because you know, first and foremost, the master of all our labors. This is our third point. Turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 9 through 11. Ecclesiastes 3, 9, 11. The verses that are, we read, that we, I won't read, but that are prior to this are the well-known a time for everything passage, a time to give birth, a time to live, etc. And uh, maybe uh, I'm just going to throw this up just for fun, but maybe some of you remember a song that these words were put to. Anybody know? Is such a song? Can anybody just raise your hand? Do you? Yeah. I know. It's, it's like that. Do you remember the group? Oh, very good. Uh, who's ever heard of the birds? Okay, some of you, right? I was thinking the majority of us, I'd never heard of the birds until I looked at the song this week. I said, who, who sung that song? That was really cool. In 1965, December 4, 1965, uh, this song... Turn, turn, turn by the birds reached the number one on the Billboard Top 100. That's amazing, right? As a musician, you want to reach a number one song. And here that in 1965, it was reached number one. It was based upon uh, uh, these, these words. It was a, and it just, just struck a chord among the people in that time. Those of you who were around, you kind of remember, maybe remember that song. It's a very, I mean, if you, and those of you who weren't around that time, you probably heard it anyways because it is a very iconic song. Uh, don't go listen to it on Spotify right now, okay? But it is a song that just talks about, basically reflects these truths that we find in scriptures. But it's kind of funny as I was thinking about looking at this thing that this group, the birds, uh, they'd pass from memory. Maybe those of you that lived in that time, you remember them, but 
for myself and the people of my generation, and I'm in my 40s, I had no idea who the birds were. I've forgotten them. And, uh, and even though they had reached number one, and that's what happens for all of us. Whatever you do, it's gonna, this is kind of like a, a great illustration of what's going to happen to all of us. You might have reached number one somewhere, but in about 20, 30 years, you'll be forgotten. It's just that fast. That's what life is like. And see, there's a time for everything. And though the song and, and the group and their, is, has, uh, is quickly fading from the scene, God's word is, does not fade. God's word is eternal. And we learn that God's word <laughs> says that every, there, is, uh, there is an appointed time for everything under the heaven. And they are all appointed by God. And so we read in verse 9 to 11, what profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils. I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their hearts so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. You see, whatever the task man does, whatever we spend our days on earth doing, fulfilling as part of our labors, Ecclesiastes teaches us that God has sovereignly appointed it for you to do. Whatever God's appointing in your life, he's sovereign, right? He's in control of all things. And he, while <coughs> orchestrating all things, has even appointed the very task that he has given to you to do. He's made everything appropriate, everything literally beautiful in its time. Because everything just fits beautifully together. God has sovereignly appointed each and every one of us to live here, for instance, in the Bay Area, at this point in time, to accomplish the very specific task that he has set for us to do. And you think about it, even individually, every season in your life, every single season, whatever season you might be in, whether you're just starting off, whether you're in the middle of your middle seasons of your life, or maybe you're in later seasons of your life, every single season has been sovereignly and beautifully orchestrated by God. See, whether you know it or not, the master of all our labors is the Lord our God. He's sovereign over our lives whether we recognize it, whether we bow the knee to him or not. Sadly, of course, and it's in our sinful, corrupted nature that none of us recognize this on our own. We all believe, we all think that we are the masters of all our labors, that we ultimately are the, the one who decides what we do. But yet God reveals in his word that he is the master of our labors, that he has created us, and he has set the task that he's given us to do to occupy our times. And what's more, it says in verse 11 that he created us with a sense of eternity in our heart. This idea of eternity in our heart, it means that we have an awareness, awareness of time, awareness of time that's more than just the present, an awareness of the past before our life, an awareness of the future beyond our lives. We think about, we, as human beings, we study the, 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 dec- the, hun- the years, the hundreds and thousands of, of years that are past. We look to the past, we try to look to the beginnings of this universe. We look to the future, and I was just reading about it, we actually have theories about how this en- universe will end. And what will happen, we think about what will happen the, on our planet in hundreds and thousands of years from now. See, man has a sense of past and future Man has a sense of eternity, even when we think far enough, we think in the sense that we can have an idea of eternity, and yet we don't fully grasp it. We're blinded, it says. 
he, though he puts eternity in our heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done. Though we have a sense of eternity, we fail to see that what eternity points to, eternal God. We don't grasp that God is involved upon everything in our lives. He, we don't see how he's there at the beginning. We say, no, no, that was just a little spot that just exploded. We don't see him at the very end. It's just going to, depending on which theory you like, it's going to, you know, maybe shrink back. Or, or, or instead of the great, infinite, magnificent kingdom of God that's going to be established for all eternity in history, where, all, where he will dwell with his people. Even when we are regenerated, when we come to know Jesus Christ, we sanctify the Lord, we don't fully grasp God's activity throughout our time. We wonder, we don't understand God's ways. We can't, because God's infinite and we are finite. But we know, we begin to know that God is involved in every part of my life. You ever wonder, you thought to yourself, why, do, why does God have me living here in this particular place at this very time? Why was I not born to be in the, a Roman, you know, a Roman centurion in Jesus' day? Why was I not born to be a cowboy somewhere in, a, you know, wild, wild west? Why was I not born somewhere in the jungles of Africa? Why was I not born to be, uh, you know, uh, living out in England or something like that? You know, I don't know. God created me as to be a, uh, to be a child of some Chinese immigrants raised up in Seattle, Washington, and then called here to San Francisco. Why this? Why this time? And though I may not understand why, I know that God is the one who has orchestrated every aspect of my life. He's appointed this time, this place, not only for me, but this time, this place for you. Why? Because he wants you to accomplish his will at this time in this place that he made you for. Why did he orchestrate the circumstances, timing of our, of our life and the way that he has? Maybe even now, some of you might be asking, why is whatever you're facing happening to you? You may never know, but we know who does know, and that's God. And he is our master, and he is our Lord. See, as one saved by the grace of God, know then that he has created you and saved you in this moment in history to accomplish the very good works, those labors that according to Paul in Ephesians 2.10, that God has prepared beforehand so you would walk in them. There's a parallel passage to this idea that the master of our lives is the Lord. It's Colossians 3, 23 and 24, where Paul says, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. In all your labors under the sun, do it in the service of our master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do it to serve him. No matter what earthly rewards or recompense you may receive for your labors on earth, remember then, verse 11, verse 24 tells us that the reward you receive from the Lord, this reward of the inheritance, it will be far more precious. It will be far more eternal and lasting. So serve him whose reward will never perish. Serve him whose reward will be greater than all that you may gain from this life. Serve the master. That's what we can understand. We as believers understand. So in all our labors, let's devote it. Whatever you're doing this week, devote it as your service unto your master, the Lord and God who made you and created you and saved you. Let's look to the fourth and final lesson. 
the eternal value of all our labors. Solomon writes in verse 12 to 15, I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it. There is nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should fear him. That which is has been already and that which will be has has already been. For God seeks what has passed by. Solomon here in these verses affirms two things that he knows, that he reveal, that, <coughs> that reveals to us the value of all our labors, the eternal or spiritual value of all our labors. He says, I know that in t- verse 12, and he says it again in the beginning of verse 14. So these are two things that Solomon affirms that he knows. Number one, first of all, he affirms this, that there is nothing better in this lifetime than rejoicing in and doing good in all our labors. Because the provision and delight that we receive from it is the gift of God. He sees when you understand that all that our labors is what God gives us, then you realize you can re- that there's nothing better in this life to, re- to fulfill it as you fulfill it, to enjoy it, to do good with it. Because as you do so, you see God's provision. You experience God's provision of, of our daily bread but he also experienced God's provision for the, the strength and the grace and the wisdom that we all do. You know, hopefully you've experienced that already. You're learning to do that, that every day when you wake up, that you ask God for help to do your work. You ask God, Lord, grant me the strength and wisdom to do your work. Or maybe you don't have to ask him. You just praise him. Lord, I praise you for this day, for the breath that you give me, for the strength you give me and the wisdom that you grant so that I might go about my day for your glory. Because God gives us these days. God gives us our work. No matter what your work, as you go about doing it and experience the, the, the pleasures and the joys of doing it, it should be pointing you to look to the Lord in thankfulness. That's number one. Number two, secondly, and more importantly, Solomon affirms here that God's sovereign will cannot be thwarted. So he's, he wants to affirm that fearing the sovereign Lord brings eternal value to our labors. Because if God is sovereign, nothing, can, nothing man can do will change his will. Nothing will thwart his promises, his plans. God is working all things, Romans 8, 28, all things together for the good of those who love him. And really, in the bigger picture of what God is doing, he's basically saving the people for his glory and his name. That's what he's accomplishing. And he's orchestrating everything in history for that purpose. He just, you know, yes, he, he's sovereign over who is president, who is prime minister, who is vice president, who these, who's, fulfills these 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 little uh, roles in the various governments of our world, but that's not his concern. His concern is that through these governments, through these peoples, that he orchestrates the proclamation of this gospel through his people that are interspersed throughout the nations of this world. He's about accomplishing his purpose and plans. And nothing man does opposes it. Though we oppose it, though we ignore it, his work, his purpose, his plans will endure forever. And therefore, Solomon says, we should... Fear him. God has so worked that men should fear him. And this is not so much the, the terrifying fear, though that is something that we should, we, if we knew how sinful we are in light of the, how holy he is, we would have that terrifying fear because he, des- he has every right to judge and destroy us. But instead, this idea includes this idea of fearful reverence, that a respect of the Lord that that responds to him in a right way. 
You see, fearing the Lord will bring eternal value to our labors because as we fear him, as we fear the Lord, the psalmist and the and Solomon in Proverbs 1, 7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the beginning of knowledge. We begin to have true wisdom. We begin to have true knowledge when we fear God. We, when we look at our world apart from God, we just start coming up with all sorts of weird theories. You know? But when we look at the world as the way God, in a reverence and fear of God, we start seeing the world as he designs it. And he, how he gives purpose to everything. And there's a beauty in everything. All the beauty that we see points to the beauty of God. And we begin to see that how he is sovereignly in control. When we fear him, we trust in that sovereignty. We trust in the power. It's not just all random mutations that just happen to lead and produce to all our lives. There's an order. There's a purpose. There's a design that God gives. And so we seek him in order to accomplish the very design that he has made us to do with the very, our hands that he's given us. You see, we can know that we cannot do anything of value, of eternal value, apart from his help. And what's more, even more about fearing God means we seek after his sovereign will. We seek after things that he seeks. And ultimately, what he seeks is the lost, the souls of men and women. You know, <laughs> um, I have a, uh, just a, a thought came across my mind as I was working on my cabinets. And I wonder if I should share it with you. I'll share it with you. But... Uh, as I was working on my cabinets, a, a thought came to mind, right? And I thought, hmm, this is pretty fun. I wonder if you can get paid doing this. And I know you can. Yeah, I know you can. So I thought, you know, wouldn't it be fun if I was a, a carpenter, you know, or a, a cabinet ref, ref, you know, repainter? It might be fun. Can I, can I get paid money for that? I wonder how much. I just thought to myself, well, this is nice. You know why? Oh, I thought it was so nice. Not just because I enjoyed it. But I just, what I really enjoyed is at the end of the day, I could look at something, my cabinets, say, ah, I finished that. Even if it was just part of the cabinets, I finished that. that. That's nice. Oh, that's nicely done. No, you know, no, I don't even see the paintbrush grains or anything. It's just beautifully done. It just looks all good. Oh, that's shiny. That's, you know, just at the end of the day, you have a finished work. And some of us have those kinds of work. <clears throat> but as a pastor, my work is not like that. And uh, many of us here who are, when you're involved in the work of disciple making, you know what I mean. Because we work with people. And when we work with people, people are never finished. Not in this life. None of us are, right? Um, and, uh, and though the thought just passed my mind, I, I just started thinking, you know, as I was working along, it's like, you know, yeah, it would be nice. be relaxing. But then I realized... Though I might enjoy this cabinet and then it may be finished, it's going to perish. There's no eternal value in my cabinets. But there's so much value. There's an infinite value in the souls of men and women that I shepherd as a pastor of this church. Yes, there's not going to be the reward of a daily, at the end of the day, I say, oh, look, uh, you know, he's finished. Oh, she's finished. They're, they're done. They're good. They're sent completely Christ like now. If only that were possible. But the souls of men and women, though they are never finished in this life, they, they will, those who come to Christ will only grow in their sanctification. They will be finished. They will be finished one day because of Christ, never to be corrupted again, completely unlike my countenance. 
in eternity in heaven, I don't think I'm going to see my cabinets there, right? But I'm going to see many of you there. I hope all of you there. You'll be completely Christ-like, and the joy that I will receive at that moment from watching your lives will be infinitely greater than the joy of my cabinets, for sure. In fact, my cabinets are already fading because I have kids. But... uh, so as much as your work can be used to minister and witness to other souls, as much as you can focus your work to, to, uh, to lead people to the law, lead the lost to the, to the Lord, do so for the glory of God. You know, but even, even if, because God is sovereign in your, in, our, in your labors, even if your work involves no people at all, there's always at least one soul that is affected by your labor, and that's you, right? You're affected by your labor. Everything that you experience in life is how God uses it to shape and mold you to become more like Christ. So when it's hard at work, begins, and it's, there will be difficulties at work, it's meant to shape you so that you would trust in God more, that you'd be more Christ-like, that you'd be more patient, that you'd be in, in long-suffering, that you'd be more loving, that you'd be more patient, that you'd speak more truth, that you'd be more honest. All these things is what God shapes you through what you do. And that's where the, some, the eternal value of work comes as well. Verse 15 simply reminds us that there's nothing new under the sun. God is in control of all, and so let us fear the one who controls it all and serve him with our labors, because he makes all our labors have eternal value. And though countless lives, generations of people have passed from the face of this earth into eternity and are forgotten, God does not forget any single one. He will perfect every soul that belongs to him, and he will use their labors for his glory in eternity future. You think about it, and it's even we think about we think about Jesus, we think about the apostles, their life, their life's labors continue to impact people today, right? Yeah, it's always like, oh yeah. But there are Christians between them and us that God used to bring someone else to the Lord for his eternal value. And they're all forgotten. But God does not forget. He seeks after, he intends to use all those everyone. And in fact, there is somebody out there whom you know, who's gone and passed, whom the Lord used and brought to the Lord, who shared the gospel with someone, who shared the gospel with someone, so that that someone would share the gospel with you. Think about that. And you won't know who they are, but you someday in eternity you might. But God does that for you. And what you do impacts people here. But it's because God is sovereign. He's going to use what you do in whom you may lead to the Lord and, and disciple to, towards Christ's likeness to impact generations to come. And whatever work you do, fear God. Serve him, they might be glorifying you. I want to end with a song, and a response song. I know we don't, uh, we are kind of out of time, but I'm going to ask the worship team to come up and lead us in one final song. And hopefully, this is kind of a newer song. I, I think it's newer, uh, but it, just for, if you don't know it, you don't have to sing it, but you, that you might either reflect upon the truths and uh, that you might meditate upon them. Let's pray. Or, Father, as we uh, think about our labors that you give us under the sun, help us to see it as that which you ordained for us. Lord, that, uh, that we would live for it for your glory to accomplish your purposes that you, so that you might do your work in us and through us. Thank you for the labors you give us. Thank you that you might be glorified in it. Thank you for giving purpose to all that which we do. In Jesus' name, amen.